official and everything. Listen to that recording in progress. Here we go. Well, thank you, everybody, for tuning in to another episode of Friends Talking Nerdy. This is Tim Jasmine. Joining me, I have the greatest legal mind in the Pacific Northwest. It is Professor Aubrey. According to you, I always have to say... Well, I think people can accept that, of course. <laughs> and um, also joining us all the way from Tennessee, it is Keely. How are you doing? Hey, y'all. Doing good. All right. We are here to bring you another episode of the Friends Talking Nerdy Book Club. It has been a little bit, but this is a book that we definitely did want to touch upon. Um, the biggest takeaway here is don't make a lot of plans during a busy summer school course. Um, but uh, more than anything, Shrill, tell us about our book uh, that we're going to read, Professor. So for book club, this time we have read Shrill by Lindy West. And Shrill is a interesting book. It is a combination of essays, previously published essays, and coupled with the personal stories of Lindy West as she um, was experiencing those things that made her want to write those essays at the time she was writing them. So it's a bit of an autobiography coupled with essays, um, relatively political essays. And um, the, uh, the book, as I mentioned, was written by Lindy West, who is a woman in, uh, who was, I think she lives in LA now, um, but she was living in Seattle when she was writing for The Stranger and did a lot of her um, early writing there. And that's an alternative weekly newspaper that's been um, published in Seattle for a really long time called The Stranger. Uh-huh. Um, she's also written for another a number of other um, magazines and online journals, including Jezebel and... Um, GQ and other sources. And this book was the basis for a script that became a Hulu TV show by the same name called Shrill, which starts A.D. Bryant from Saturday Night Live and is actually filmed right here in Portland, Oregon. We're the stand-in for Seattle, I guess. (laughs) Um, What else was I going to um that's pretty much it you were just uh given the basic overview of her work but um and and the basic the basic gist of the book is she's a young um writer and um it's the struggles that she goes through as a young female writer in seattle as she tries to confront lots of things um all of the isms in the world and that's essentially what the book is about Okay, now now what did you do in your summer vacation? No. <laughs> <laughs> we had a very busy summer around here. We had lots of fun activities, so we didn't do much reading. <laughs> well, before we dive into the book, um, being that this is the first uh, nonfiction book that uh, we're tackling on the book club here, I thought it would be uh, nice to kind of toss it out there. What is our enjoyment of memoirs, autobiographies, and um, do we have any that uh, stand out as um, as uh, like the shining jewels of the craft? Uh, we'll start with Keely. Um, I think my favorite memoir autobiographical kind of stories are from David Sedaris. Mm. Um, he is the, the way that he, just the storytelling craft that he 
is so good at and the way that he uses humor and also like very dark humor um, to talk about, you know, real things that happened in his life um, and just kind of uses that as a vehicle to comment on society and culture and all kinds of things. He's really smart. He's really funny. It's got a lot of heart. It's just got it all. Nice. What about you, Professor? Well, I love autobiography. Um, it's one of my favorite things to read because, and biography for that matter. Um, and I've really enjoyed through the years, the more like casual attempts at memoir. Like it used to be that the only people who wrote memoirs were great. You know, the great and mighty of us would eventually write down their life story. Um, but like when uh, people like Michelle T came along and wrote Valencia, which is her memoir. Um, and just there's lots and lots of other memoirs like um, Stone Butch Blues is a great one. Um, the Diary of Emma Goldman is a really good one about anarchist Emma Goldman. Um, and they just give you like you can learn about the facts and events of history, but unless you you know, really get to see how people were living. It doesn't seem as real. And so I think that's why I like autobiography so much. Um, starting, of course, with the, the most famous autobiography, which was the, the diary of Samuel Pepys, who- Oh, that one? Yeah, the one that, that he, <laughs> he wrote it a long time ago in England um, and during the, the great fire in England, during plague. Uh, so he, he was kind of the first chronicler of- everyday life that we have in written form in English so the world's first subtweet I don't know. yeah exactly <laughs> the world's first subtweet. what about you Tim do you like that genre um I do um I mean I'm on the bookshelf as as we speak um at Powell's books I was able to get a nice um paperback collection in a box of volumes one and two of the memoirs of Richard Nixon um which I've actually read before um you know because that's what kind of nerdy we are <laughs> yeah. yeah. So uh, that was definitely fun. Um, Bill Clinton's memoirs, My Life is really good, if only because that's where I got like the greatest insult ever. Um, and I guess he said it's an old Southern phrase of, I wouldn't piss in his ear if his brain was on fire. I love that one. <laughs> that is a good, a good one. I'll have to use that one because there yeah. are several people that I feel that way about. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, lines like that are great. Um, and I've also read like uh, George W. Bush's uh, memoirs. Those are actually pretty insightful. Um, definitely um, recommend uh, checking out stuff like that. Also- Have um, you read Obama's book? I tried. I think he's boring. <laughs> I didn't like it. <laughs> Just to drive, like, like his idea of like a fun time would, to me would be like sipping Earl Grey and reading like a hardbound copy of like the rise and fall of the Roman Empire. And that sounds like fun, you know, and like me, it's like, no, put something on that goes boom. <laughs> but um but ultimately what i like to more than anything are reading like memoirs of like artists i respect you know like pete townsend uh put out his memoir 
Wars uh, called Who I Am, um, which kind of detailed his life. He didn't talk about the time where I annoyed him, thank goodness. Um, Keith Richards had uh, great memoirs. Um, per, a couple professional wrestlers even had some great memoirs. Uh, Mick Foley and Bret Hart. Um, not just the superficial, you know, ghost written stuff, stuff they actually took the time to write out themselves. So, mm. um, you know, it, it, it varies on the person, but uh, uh, definitely memoirs, like you said, can give you a great insight into what it was like at the time. Um, now, obviously, being memoirs, you're hearing it from one person's point of view. And that reminds me, too, of another person. The works of Hunter S. Thompson. Mm. I mean, the man was a genius. And um, even though, he, you know, he was a reporter and a lot of times his work was, you know, reporting on political events. You wouldn't know it if you read it because he threw a lot of himself into his work. That was the beauty of, uh, you know, his gonzo journalism. So memoirs can de uh, are, are definitely, definitely entertaining to read. For sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, you know, some of the people you listed out were people who included political essays. So Hunter S. Thompson, for example, uh -huh. was not only, you know, generating fiction that made you think about things, but was actually writing um, essays on salient topics. Yes. Uh, and that's what Lindy was doing. And so she talks about a number of political issues that were really continued to be hot button issues, but certainly were hot button issues in the mid um, 2010s when this book was um, published in 2015. And so those, she sort of intersperses these essays, which are quite political with her personal story. And so we thought we'd sort of talk about the different parts of the book kind of separately and first talk about sort of the political issues that she brings up. And of course, she deals with um, she herself is a is a cis female white fat person, fat bodied person, and um, so identifying that way, and in some I don't know the other ways that she might identify in terms of her identity, right? Um, but fat phobia, racism, transphobia, homophobia, ableism are things that permeate her experience of the world and that she talks about in the book, um, all sort of, um, we see, abortion also an issue that's in there that is more of a feminist issue. And I would say that misogyny is a, is a huge one. And, and so I think we could talk about this book in the feminist context or an anti-racist context or any of those contexts um, but i think it'd be good to to talk about yeah let's uh, kind of go over some of uh the big points let's start off um i think with the big focus of the work and that's misogyny in today's culture because, you know, to her point, you know, there has been, definitely been some changes that have been made within the past 10 years, but a lot more needs to be done, of course. Um, so, like, encountering that topic in the book and living it on a daily basis, how... What she, how was her writing able to express that? And do you think she was able to express it in the right way, if that makes sense? Hmm. I don't in know, terms Keely, of, thoughts? In terms of will people... Um, no, sorry, go ahead, Tim. 
No, I, I, that's all I meant. So go ahead. You were, you were wondering whether we thought her communication about it was authentic to our own experiences and whether we thought it was effective in yeah, you know, simple, change. Yeah, simple question. Right now. <laughs> mm, I just, yes. <laughs> I think, um, first of all, I have to just come out and, and declare that, um, you guys are a lot smarter than I am. So um, I don't want to play the character of the caricature of the dumb Southerner, but I might be playing that role sadly in this podcast. Um, But yes, I do think that the way that she talks about misogyny, the way that she writes about it is so, um, matter of fact and really like with the um sort of the the comedy club scene being kind of a boys club and all that um uh the way that she describes scenarios um that she was in where everybody else in the room is like oh no it's jokes no it's fun we're having fun she's like no that's not fun and um just kind of calls it out and names it what it is is really interesting to and that was interesting to me and really resonated with me because sometimes I find myself thinking like am I crazy am I the asshole or is this fucked up and sorry can I say swear words yes absolutely (laughs) (laughs) um so it it really it felt very like genuine and authentic and realistic like um that things that we kind of take for granted or it's just like well that's the way it is yes that's true that's the way that it is but it isn't the way that it should be and it's kind of bullshit that that's the way that it is um so yeah it felt very like authentic and sort i guess validating Mm. is the word that I'm looking for. It's interesting in that scene where she is arguing with the male comedians about whether rape jokes are funny, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. There's this assumption, right? That rape jokes are jokes to begin with, right? And so it creates this circular argument that jokes are intended to be funny and therefore all jokes are okay. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. As long as it's a joke, um, so she's having that conversation with a bunch of male um, comedians and she has great, I mean, she really does a great job, I think, of meeting them where they are and trying to present the counter arguments for everything that they bring up. But it is so like real life that you get to the end of that and she's made all of these really eloquent and, and reasonable arguments and the guys are still like, no, but it's just a joke. So she, yeah. you know, gets nowhere most of the time and I think that that's really true to life yes like feminism in the 2020s is we talk about it all the time Mm -hmm. but we can't get to a point of agreement you know like everybody Mm. agrees there should be equal pay but nobody can figure out something that everybody can agree we should do about it yeah yeah 
the yeah the story you mentioned uh is uh is a story she talked about when she was on a, a show that w camu bell uh the guy who does work mm-hmm. on cnn now had on fx and it was him interviewing her and um another comedian by the name of jim something or other i i forgot his name like it, it if you like stand-up comedy enough you've probably seen him somewhere but um at, before we started the recording when uh you had uh, one of your meetings I actually went to youtube and saw that clip and it was actually worse than she presented it in the book um because this was a classic situation of um of a host of a tv show getting on one guest who has tv experience who has who's kind of mm-hmm. you know up for basically loading it up to where the person that he ultimately agrees with is the one that comes out uh, ahead. And, you know, she on the show, you could see like some of her facial expressions, which she ends up talking about in the book. Um, You know, she was cut off a lot. And, you know, like, have I seen that happen to female employees that I've worked at on the retail level and on the computer repair level, especially? Yes, I have. And that, um, you know, as, as a guy reading this, um, I, I, you know, I, I, I can say I did appreciate how I think, she, how good I think she was able to kind of interpret it into male speak, I guess, so that guys could, could kind of see, okay, I get what you're saying, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, I think she makes really great, um, really great arguments throughout the book. I guess my, I I do have a little bit of criticism and we can talk some more about the specific issues that she was talking about. But for Mm -hmm. me, it felt a little bit derivative of prior feminist memoir slash autobiographical slash essays. And I'm thinking particularly of Feminine Mystique. I don't know if, have you read that Keely? I have not read it cover to cover. I'm aware of it, um, but no, I haven't. I haven't really familiarized myself deeply. Have you read it, Tim? I have a personal autograph cut. No, no. Um. <laughs> <laughs> so this was a book in uh, by Betty Friedan that was written about the experience of being a middle class housewife in the fifties and early sixties, yeah. and that sort of Stepford wife kind of position and how not fulfilling that was um, and her experience of it. And so this is kind of a similar, it's just a different snapshot in time of the experience of being a woman in America, I think, because it is very true in terms of misogyny. It's very true to my experience, which is that there's lots of misogyny around. People don't like to own it. And uh, so people will point at it and examine it and interrogate it as we say these Mm -hmm. days but nobody really does much about it still Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah I think that that's that's the part that's so frustrating is that with misogyny or lots of things um in the world today that we love to talk about it but nobody really wants to change their behavior like even the people who you know like the progressive white ladies want to talk about all the things but like until we change our behavior and inspire others to change theirs you know it's it's kind of feels like a stalemate 
especially when you have um, the situation like she brought up in the book with people like Pat and Oswald, um, you know, she, mm-hmm. you know, made it very clear that, you know, she, though, that what she was saying about him, I mean, she wasn't, you know, ripping into him, but she was also very clear that he has at times, even though he does have a reputation of being a progressive comedian of being a nice guy and all that, he's also been on the wrong side of these opinions before in terms of like defending um, Daniel Tosh uh, with the rape jokes because that's uh, what yeah. Lindy West was on the TV show. It was not Jim Gaffigan, Jim Norton or something. Jim Norton, is, yeah, that's Jim who Norton. Was. Yeah, yeah, so it, it was defending. It was essentially talking about the Tosh situation to where Daniel Tosh at the time. Um, I, I, are you familiar with his work? I am. Unfortunately, yes. Yeah, he's kind of like a <laughs> modern frat bro version <laughs> yeah. of uh, Don Rickles, mm-hmm. you know, and um, yeah. I guess at a comedy club one time just made some inappropriate comments, but tried to. Well, this was to- when he this was when he was making a rape joke and someone heckled him and said, rape's not funny. And he said, I hope that um, everybody rapes you right now as she left the yeah 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 just just it wasn't a joke it was inappropriate and you know just put you know putting her in that woman in the audience in a spot to where she had to be wary that the white guys that were drinking lots of beer could potentially be after i mean come on it's it's it shouldn't have happened he shouldn't have been defended but then you had people like Patton oswald you know kind of doing the the, the comedians by defense, it seems like they want to come out and, and not take except uh, the, some of them don't want to take responsibility for their words. They think that as a comedian, they can say and do whatever they want, which when, they can, which they can, but they're not seeing the point that the best comedians are ones mm-hmm. that are not putting people down. They're building people up. You know, like I spoke to you about people that commonly are going to be the ones that uh, take Jim Norton's side in the argument. will bring up people like Mel Brooks in Blazing Saddles. You know, show me where in Blazing Saddles Mel Brooks was supporting racism, where he was making the racists in that movie look out to be heroes. He wasn't. He was laughing Mm -hmm. at them and using Mm -hmm. their words against them. That is different than what uh, Daniel Tosh did. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think, I don't know if it was, I can't remember if it was in this book or if it was um, in... Oh, I can't remember who said it. It was either Lindy West or David Sedaris or Bianca Del Rio, who is a drag queen that I enjoy, who's an insult comic and says mm. horrible things about everyone and every like it's like South Park, like no one is safe. Everything is on the table. Um, but they they talk about punching up. Like comedy is good when you're punching up. And I think it was in this book that Lindy West talks about um, Chris Rock talking about the idea of punching up is funny. Like that's why it's funny to, or it's, it feels better to like poke fun at political leaders or people in positions of power and privilege, but it's not funny to punch down. And, and she, it kind of feels like a rape joke is never not punching down. And she gives a great example, um, a, a great analogy in the book. You know, how would how would a person react if Tim Cook at Apple went to an Apple store and started goofing on a part time worker there? 
Right. That's not appropriate. You know, right. <laughs> and, and the same thing should be said, you know, the guys. Which was one of the lessons from Louis C.K.'s yeah. situation, I think, really, that he didn't, that he at least stated that he didn't really get until it came out and he was interrogating that behavior was, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the people he was asking to do things with him. Uh-huh were much less powerful than he was. They were up and coming comics. They weren't on the same level as him. It wasn't an even mm-hmm. playing field. And and so I think that, I mean, that happens all the time. Like um, people will use diminutive names like Sweetie mm-hmm. or Honey or Missy or um lady or something like that um in a way that is like honorific but is really meant to other and create distance yeah, between people it's condescending mm-hmm. yeah it's very condescending and so it's like we can look at anybody's behavior could be i think it's true that anybody's behavior can be problematic it's all mm-hmm. dependent on the context yeah yeah indeed and when somebody says you know hey i've felt some kind of way when you said this to me i think that like not that the intention intention doesn't erase impact but when and you know if if something is harmful is said the intention doesn't erase the harm, but when when the harm is brought to the other person's attention, the way that the the other person responds, I feel like is everything. Like if you know a coworker is like, "Hey, like you talked really crazy to me in front of some people, and I feel some kind of way about it." If I want to, if I'm just like defensive and worried about defending my own self and not acknowledging the harm that was done to the other person that's problematic but if I'm able to be like oh wow thank you for teaching me that like thank you for letting me know like what can we do different next time how can we go forward you know what I mean I feel like a lot of in the like these male comics in in the stories in the book um there's no there's there's no self-awareness there's no like self there's not enough self-reflection to be like oh like I participated in causing harm and let me like tend to the person who was harmed versus just defending my own self absolutely yeah and it is interesting too how comedians are kind of fighting against that by claiming that somehow we're censoring them. I mean, people are not being censored for one, but where 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 does it say that you know that 
you still can't have, you know, wild humor. You can't have extreme humor, you know, to Chris Rock's point, if he's the one who did come up with that phrase, I guess she mentioned he wasn't 100% sure, but um, Lindy in the book did. But, you know, if, if you know, you can, who says you can't have that type of humor without still punching up? I mean, example, Big Mouth, you know, the Netflix show is very raunchy, yet at the end of the mm-hmm. day, you know, they do have a, a positive spin. They're trying to, you know, t- uh, you know, tell some good stories while uh getting some information out there and and i i I don't know what what do you think about that do you think it's do you think that's as disingenuous a a thing as i feel it to be do you think that's just the kind of how some people say I, i don't know do you get my point i absolutely get your point i think that these comedians you know how so the question is is this any different than what might go on in a school or a business or you know some other enterprise how is it different that these are comedians versus some other men Uh and i think the only difference is that they um are good at talking and so Uh they're probably going to stand up and make arguments more so than maybe some other men who will simply disregard what was said and go about their business because there's no consequences for them for not listening or not being responsive. But I mm-hmm. think that most men, if you if you confronted them for something they'd say, they go to intent first, mm-hmm. say, I didn't mean anything by it. And then when you're explained that, nope, that's not enough, it doesn't matter that you didn't mean to do mm-hmm. it. You did do it, so you do have to take responsibility for it. The, everybody, very few people, I mean, I think this is how you identify someone who is a feminist or maybe somebody that you can communicate with, maybe somebody to be interested in nonviolent communication, some ability to get on the same page. Right. They're pretty few and far between. I try to capitalize yeah. all of them. <laughs> yes. Um, I, I don't think I've captured all of them yet, but sometimes it feels like I know all of them. The, the thing is with comedians <laughs> though, too, some of them do have a point in a sense that, you know, the good comedians are the ones that will essentially pull the scab off of society's ills in order to expose it for what mm-hmm. they are you think of people like Richard Pryor George Carlin who have done some really really stellar work throughout the years while also you know get putting out material that's not going to be shown on PBS in the morning you know so mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. but the problem I have it's like a, a quote that uh, the reverend loves to bring up about John Cleese uh, making comments uh, make, making a comment about not making jokes for stupid people how do you necessarily know, though, that you're not the stupid one? <laughs> you know, if, if, you're, right. if, if you're a white male growing up and used to life in one particular way and don't have any idea that life is a different way, um, just because you have not experienced it, how can you honestly say, you know, how can you honestly defend making jokes about stuff that you don't experience? You can't. You, I think you can make jokes about things you don't experience. I don't think there's a rule that you can't do that in a way that's responsible 
Um, but does anybody need to hear me as a 45, 45 year old white man getting up on a comedy stage, making jokes about uh, racism in America today? Well, I mean, really. if you felt called to comedy, I wouldn't say that just because you're a white man doesn't need doesn't mean that you can't do something that you want to do. Even though I think in general, we need to hear a whole lot less from people who happen to look like you. Yeah, I, I agree. <laughs> Except for podcasts, this one in particular. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's, uh, I'm, I think that's an interesting idea that you brought, like who gets to, who's allowed to comment on, on things. And I think, I think anybody can, can say whatever they want, but with the caveat of like, I have not lived this experience, you know, like as a, a white lady, in a predominantly black school um sometimes i feel well and really like there's a a predominantly black school district in some ways um sometimes i feel frustrated that when we have like special groups on like equity and diversity and inclusion it's mostly white women in their thirties and forties who are, are coming together to try to um, make a plan to help our colleagues. But I also think that black people, brown people, people who are disenfranchised are exhausted with educating the white ladies and that it can be an opportunity to like use our power and privilege to educate our counterparts, not our counterparts, but our colleagues. And I think that that's, I think when, when you can speak about it from a place of cultural humility and say like, I'm not the expert on this, Here's what I learned from some experts and kind of honor where, you know, this, the stories that we tell are coming from. Um, I think that that can be some good work that we can do. So I think like with comedian, that's different than comedy, but I think that comedians can, can talk about and joke about and reveal, you know, the gross underbelly of our society and that that they can do good work in that way um but i think that it's the context it's the way it's presented it's you know who who's benefiting from it who's capitalizing on it um yeah it's tricky it's a it's a tricky gray area but i think that it's I don't think anybody is discounted from talking about anything I, just because right, of how they look. Completely different question as to whether I would, as a consumer, consume whatever they were producing, right? Yes, totally. Uh, yeah, I mean, we've kind of tackled that in some ways on the show here, which is why we don't talk about music as much as we did. Because, you know, when we would talk about stuff like the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, 
we were definitely enthusiastic about it, but people that don't know us coming across us, you know, they're, you know, if they have a choice between our podcast and somebody who's written a biography on the Beatles or the Stones or something like that, talking about the same music, they're going to talk about that, you know? Well, we here at um, Casa Nerdy just got (laughs) Casa, Casa Nerdy. Casa Nerdy. Um, (laughs) We just got XX what is it called? Sirius XM. Sirius XM, yes. And the interesting, you know, there's lots of interesting things about Sirius XM, one of which is um, the extent to which they have uh, musicians, artists, very well respected ones, DJing on Sirius XM. So you know, that would be similar to what you're talking about, being able to hear what. Um, you know, what would Tom Petty choose of the Beatles is much more interesting than what would Tim Jasma choose of the Beatles for his favorite song, right? Yeah, and that does not mean my opinion is any less valid, but nobody knows me. Everybody knows Tom Petty, you know? So it's like, <laughs> it's like I'm in a spot to where I feel that, yeah, I should put out stuff that people are going to want to say. I want to hear what he has to say about mm. this and and i think comedians do need to put themselves in that spot too like if you're a white guy do you really need to be making rape jokes seriously you know i'm not saying don't because if you can find a way to make a joke that is funny but also makes people think and causes some good then by all means go ahead and say it but really ask yourself should you be the one making those mm-hmm. jokes mm-hmm. nine times exactly. out of ten you're yeah. gonna find out the answer is probably no Mm -hmm. And I think it's, you know, that cultural humility is so, it's such an important concept, this idea that you admit that you don't know it all, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, try to not put the burden on the historically Mm -hmm. underrepresented person, but Mm -hmm. instead to take on those burdens to figure stuff out on your own, like why it might be a bad idea to to tell rape jokes, right? Like to have the kind of mind that's inquiring. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that's, you know, of course, that's what we're talking about when we talk about bringing um, critical race theory to schools is just a way <laughs> to more analytic and problem solving yes. around yes. these complex social issues. That's all yes. it is. Absolutely. And like, as an educator in the state of Tennessee, it is, it's very frustrating. It's demoralizing and disheartening to have such utter nonsense from our legislators and, and leaders in education. But the truth is that good teachers have always taught criticality. And they have always taught, like before critical race theory was a word that people knew, you know, good teachers have always done that. And I think that they will always continue to do so. And even if they can't something specifically called critical race theory, they can, they're already doing it. They're already teaching their students to engage in that kind of inquiry. Yes. Yes. And, and teaching exam, I think for, for teachers examining our own, um, the materials that we use, the way that we present lessons to, to students and really taking on um, a, our own criticality and like refining that is hugely important. But like 
teaching children to think critically is one of the foundational things that we need to do in education. And so whether it's, you know, about race or which, which is a human construct that became a thing in the 1500s and 1600s. Like this isn't, I was reading an article from the African American same time period. history. The same time period that gave us corporate personhood, actually. Yeah. So, yeah lots of great stuff from the 15 and 1600s that we still are fucking <laughs> our lives up with. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, so I think that I'm glad that in some ways, I'm glad that there's so much conversation and debate about critical race theory because um, the state of Tennessee has has made it against the law to teach critical race theory. I think it's actually bringing a whole lot more attention to it and and making forcing us as educators to be a lot more intentional with our own criticality and how we're teaching critical thinking to students. I wish that I wish that it didn't take something as stupid as this legislation, but the truth is that more conversations are happening that probably wouldn't have happened otherwise. And I, I think they're really kind of shooting themselves in the foot. Aren't they really just honoring, um, you know, a time-worn tradition in Tennessee of engaging in bizarre <laughs> educational arguments? <laughs> you know, um, there, yeah, we, we don't have a grand tradition. Wasn't a scope's trial. And, uh, <laughs> yep, 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 yep. Oh, yeah. the whole scopes thing. Yeah, it's it's bonkers. But I think the fact that we are talking about it at all is a good thing. And I think that um, I think that most people in classrooms, you know, most grownups in in classrooms teaching students are not going to change their teaching to adhere to some nonsense does that make sense yeah yeah I mean you know good teachers know as much about how to manipulate the systems in which they have to exist as they do about teaching because they can't teach unless they can navigate those systems I don't think yes yes um so it's interesting. I think the other big one besides misogyny in the book uh, was fat phobia. And I think mm-hmm. Lindy is one of a handful of people who write on that topic. And I, you know, I follow it quite closely as a fat body person, um, that area of discourse and, um, you know, all of the things that she talked about were very familiar and the you know with the whole chapter on um flying while fat uh yeah there's been i mean it's just as a six foot five person i can relate somewhat because they don't make seats uh for for me either but yeah i you know i mean like kevin smith of all people had um had been kicked off of a plane just because the the people on the, the the airline staff said that he couldn't fit in a seat, so they kicked him off the flight. 
you know, this was before um, his, his heart attack and everything, um, but which is irrelevant to the, the, the airport story, but he still, you know, he, he, he definitely experienced that. And, you know, fat people in this country, even today still have, it's one of the few groups that people can still get a quote unquote cheap laugh on. Right. Yeah, totally. Um, so I thought that was really good, but I think, you know, she, as, as we have sort of started talking about our own personal experiences, like Keely and I are both in education. And so we sort of will tend to talk about how these issues affect education, but, um, you know, she's got some really compelling personal stories herself about how she discovered these issues. And I think she's really transparent about, I made some really bad decisions or I wouldn't have done it this way if I had it to do over again, because she learns these huge lessons through these personal experiences. And that was part of the book that I enjoyed most probably was, were the, were the personal stories in her, in her personal life. Mm -hmm. What about you, Keely? Any uh, parts of the book stick out uh, in terms of how she was able to bring up her personal life and kind of intersect it in with the point she was trying to make? Yeah, I think like, I think that what um, you you just said, Aubrey, about like fat phobia um, and the story with who, what's the name of the man that was, um, her boss that did and all savage. the savage yeah. yes thank you thank you thank you thank you um dan savage was actually a guest judge on rupaul's drag race really? one season <laughs> yep uh, yeah um and i actually knew of him from that before i knew of him <laughs> from other things. really yeah I've, I've known of him <laughs> Since he started writing his advice column, which used to be in the Metro Pulse way, way back in the day. Yeah. That's probably where um, I was in the Metro Pulse, which is the weekly alternative newspaper in Knoxville, Tennessee. Oh, cool. Mm-hmm. Um, so when she's talking about when she's um, emailing back and forth with him because she kind of confronts him about like his blog post um and really just the like the way that fat phobia is couched in like we care about your health like we want you to be healthy stop being a drain on the healthcare system and the taxpayers um when she she's emailing back and forth with him and she describes what what she thinks she said was Hey, Dan, you said this, it hurt my feelings. Can you like, you know, can, can we not do talk like that anymore? But then when she went back, when she's writing this book and she reread the actual text of the email and it's just like scathing and very, um, uh, she does, she didn't come across the way that she meant to more. I really Want to. yes mm-hmm. yeah like more aggressive more sarcastic more just kind of cutting um and that is I deeply identify <laughs> with that because I um have have a more aggressive personality and will say things that 
I think are just like clearly true. And the other person is like, whoa, 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 whoa. Um, so just having like her reflecting on her sort of lack of self-awareness when she was younger and like dealing with weird vibes at work with her boss. Um, I really identified with that. And then, um, sorry, I lost my train of thought. Oh, when she talks about um, in the, the chapter called How to Stop Being Shy in 18 Easy Steps. And hold on, sorry, I'm looking for it in my book because I want to find where the sentence starts. But she's talking about how there are, when it comes to like fitness and nutrition and healthy eating and stuff like that, there's no magic bullet. Um, there's no, you know, cha- like real change is imperceptible and it's really hard. And that if any of these like Weight Watchers programs and things like that, um, if, if any of those types of programs actually did what they said that they do, then no, but none of those people would have a job. They would work themselves out of a job and kind of like, kind of talking about the self-help economy. Um, but I feel like as this, that kind of like touched, touched on something for me, because uh, I, I don't really identify as a fat bodied person, but I also am not a thin or like fit looking person. And I was when I was young. And then I gained 50 pounds when I was pregnant with my daughter. And before that, you know, if I didn't like the way my jeans fit, I could just like not eat bread or like cake for dessert and then the next day you know it's fine but being like medically overweight for the first time in my life as an adult it's kind of like it's it's a strange sensation because like I'm 5'4 170 pounds like that's not that crazy but at my last physical, the, uh, the nurse practitioner lady was like, okay, so here's some things you could do for weight loss. And it was just, I don't know. It was a weird sensation. Cause I'm not like a big curvy voluptuous lady. Um, but I'm not like a thin fit. Like I'm just not either one. And noticing, I don't know. I don't know. I feel like I sound real dumb and I'm rambling now. Oh, that's a, you, you don't sound dumb. I mean, I think the thing <laughs> is there's lots of um, degrees of fatness and they're yeah. just, like, just like with racism, there are degrees of internal, um, you know, are you big enough to be considered a fat bodied person? Like if you, mm-hmm. if you felt like a fat bodied person and you said that, would that be okay? Or are you too mm-hmm. small? considered a fat-bodied person yeah and like isn't it a known fact that what they use to judge whether you're overweight or underweight anyway the bmi the body mass index is complete garbage it's total garbage it was made up garbage from the turn of the century and they just have like 
carried it forward. Yeah. So even though, even though someone like I'm, I'm technically obese, even though I'm not, you know, it, it, and if I was, that'd be fine too, but it's just the body mass index, the thing that we're, you know, kind of judging this on is, is mm-hmm. it, it literally made by like a snake oil salesman or something like that. Yeah, it it's has just some no made up. I mean, it is just as smart as phrenology, which is when they said that your whole life is determined yeah. by the, the knots and bumps on your head. Like we've had lots of really stupid medical ideas and BMI is one of them. Mm -hmm. And obviously it's not a useful tool given that this is like becoming more mainstream people being fat bodied. Like Mm -hmm. it's not, it's not fewer and fewer people being fat bodied. It's more and more people being fat bodied. So Mm -hmm. I remember as a kid, like my mother showed me a picture of her from like a couple years previous. And, you know, she said, haven't I lost a bunch of weight? And I was like, eight and I said I didn't notice and then I remember her getting like really upset and Mm. like from an early age I you know learned that just what negativity women you know can encounter on on a daily basis from people that are ignorant that that because again we have this notion in our society that you can only look one way to look beautiful and usually that's a young, mm. skinny, and white. And mm-hmm, if you are mm-hmm. any any sort of deviation outside of that, there must be something wrong with you. And and gender um, conform conform mm-hmm. to the gender stereotypes. You also have to do that to be beautiful. Very seldom there'll be an androgynous looking person, but most most yes. of the time you have to either be very femme or very masculine. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I think the my favorite thing that she says when she's talking about like her you know her body and health and all that type of thing um she and I wrote it down on post-it and I put it on the front of my book she said you cannot take good care of something you hate you can't and I think that there's so much like diet culture nonsense that's that's fueled and makes bazillions of dollars on telling women that they should hate their body and that they should hate the way that they look but you I've hmm, I'm trying to think how to say it you really can't take good care of something that you hate like I've in, in my like wellness journey like physically and mental wellness I have found um, a lot of joy and good feelings from making choices because I love my body because it carries around my brain and it carries around my heart and it lets me do stuff that I like to do and making choices about like what I eat or how I move or don't move because like I'm want to take good care of my body that lets me do stuff versus like, Oh my God, I hate how fat my stomach is. I hate how fat my thighs are. Let me do this exercise, try to make them smaller. La 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 la. But, um, yeah, I just feel like it was really, that's that's a quote that I'm going to take with me. (laughs) I know we need to we need to wrap up soon and talk about sort of our general recommendations about the book, but just just to add my two cents to that 
conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's one of those uncomfortable things where we haven't quite figured out a way to reconcile our views on health Mm -hmm. and views on what people look like like we have Mm -hmm. so closely together at this point that you either look healthy or you're screwed like you if Mm -hmm. you don't look healthy it will be assumed that you are unhealthy and Mm -hmm. service will be denied you and I have had that I have lived experience of that happening by medical providers and it's enraging um, when that happens and and she talks Mm -hmm. about that sort of thing in the book too but let's let's leave all that aside and just say whether we what do we think of the book sort of writ large and whether we would uh, recommend to a friend that they check out Shrill by Lindy West what do you think Tim Okay, um, I definitely recommend it. Um, I, I, I would even go so far as to say to the gentlemen of the audience, this is probably the type of book you want to read to get some insight. You know, um, you know, talk to your female friends first and foremost, but you know, reading books like this will give you empathy. You're going to find out what it's like on the other side of things, you know, because like, I I know for me in the nineties, I was a part of that culture, you know, with like professional wrestling with Howard Stern, with that type of confrontational type of roasting type of humor. And in some ways that can still be fine, but you know, I I was definitely guilty for a long time of not taking the time to step back to think, should I be saying a silly joke like this, or is this really going to, you know, hurt somebody's feelings? And I, you know, I think for guys like that, especially take the time to read this book to, and, and, and just reflect on, on you and your actions as well, because, you know, like Patton Oswalt, again, I, you, you may not be totally familiar with him, but what, his, his general demeanor on Patton is, is somebody of who's a nice guy. But as Lindy said, even nice guys can still do some bone dead stupid things. And I think to be a good human being, take the time, read a book like this, and just ask questions and just be just try and be an empathetic soul. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. <laughs> I'll, I'll reserve my thoughts. Um, but um, Keely, what do you think? I think that it is required reading. I enjoyed it so much. I have a print copy, but I also listened to the audiobook that Lindy reads, um, which I love for for any kind of memoir. Love to hear the author read it um, themselves. But yeah, I can't like I can't believe that we've been talking about it for an hour already. Like the time has flown which I think is a great indication that um, there's a lot of, of good stuff and important, um, important things to think about and talk about. And she's really funny and it's fun. That's what I was going to say in response to what Tim said. Um, Absolutely. I mean, I agree with both of you. I think it's a great book and, and just really a fun read. Like she's irreverent in um, she's, she's very good 
at arguing and i think her dialogue is good now keely did bring up something that we both forgot about that you did want to bring up we listened to the audiobook as well and you mm. had um a unique reaction to it i didn't like it i mm. her voice was different to me when because i started out reading the book and mm-hmm. then we switched to the audiobook so we, mm. we were just listening it to it together and um my expectation of her and sort of how she would talk and who sort of what her personality was like was different from oh. how she portrayed it and or what it's really like I suppose it's her she would know what she's really like mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but I found it like just maybe like too many words maybe mm. not the best communicator because she kind of comes out with yeah like the analogy i gave <laughs> the, the analogy i gave her would, would be like um you know if i was writing a scene of aubrey and i talking i would go into like a four-page digression into aubrey's polar seltzer how that was created shipped to the store and how we bought it <laughs> you know um <laughs> yeah. I, and to that point i agree um to 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 a point yeah to an extent i mean i i overall i love the book and like i said i thought i think she's funny but that was just my every once in a while i was just like just use fewer words to say the same thing yeah the nitpick yeah i think i really like um i love the footnotes Mm -hmm. like just really funny little footnotes like this this um page that i'm looking at right now where she's she says uh all these different like greek yogurt things or whatever it's just that sadly there are no magic bullets and then the footnote at the bottom of the page is except for lean cuisine french bread pepperoni pizza which is an edible poem (laughs) like just like it's just smart funny and i don't know i absolutely i like i like reading the footnotes better than I like listening to her read those mm-hmm. types of things mm-hmm. um that french bread pizza was really good back then yeah it's yeah. no joke french bread frozen french bread pizza yes it's so good have you had it lately I haven't had it for several many years but we um we like to get the french bread loaf at the grocery store and and cut it in half and make our own french bread pizza Oh. with like just like ragu and mozzarella and pepperonis that sounds good get you together it's delicious yeah. sweet i'll have yeah. to try all right well, <laughs> i think that uh ending things on talking about french bread pizza is definitely mm. a way to wrap things up here <laughs> um but thank you all once again for uh listening to us talk about books here again the book we talked about is shrill uh from lindy west definitely recommend taking the time to uh um either read it or listen to the audiobook there is also as uh the professor mentioned a television show on hulu that is based on the book it's based on the book it's a very different experience from reading the book or listening to the audiobook because it's presented just as sort of serialized story of her life yeah. um but it's really good i enjoyed the, the tv show yeah it definitely has some good actors i like it too yeah the, what was her name the the woman Eddie from, bryant no the woman from saturday night live who did pat julie uh oh right julia sweeney julia sweeney, sweeney. yeah she's mm. 
She's great. Uh, in the 90s, she actually did a one-woman show that uh, Quentin Tarantino ended up producing and filming for uh, a film talking about her battles with like cancer uh, and whatnot, but really, really good. And she's a noted atheist, too. Oh, well, excellent. Yes. Oh, and Patty Harrison. Patty Harrison's in the show. Who yeah, does she play? She was in that movie that she's I saw. She's her friend at work. Yeah, the one that was in a movie together, together with the guy from the office that I saw at the Laurelhurst. Oh, the young, the young lady. The is she one. the secretary? Yes. Yeah, she and and Patty is the trans woman, and that her character is so. I, I love the character. I don't know if there's if it's really relevant to the book. I just really like Patty Harrison and I think her character is real funny in the show. (laughs) (laughs) Well, give it a watch. And once again, thank you all for listening to us every Wednesday and Saturday. We are going to have something in this podcast space to entertain your ear holes until we see you again. We bid you adieu. Bye. Subscribe to Friends Talking Nerdy on iTunes, the Google Play Music Store, as well as Spotify. Remember to support Friends Talking Nerdy on Patreon. Goodbye, darling.